Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 45 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. Private equity, DSO, corporate, whatever you call them, there's been a ton of activity and chatter in the public buyer space over the past couple of years. Clearly, you know, we at NDP champion the private buyer market and the private transition, but we also know that there are many of you, for whatever reason, need or want to consider a different type of sale. There are a ton of players in these types of transactions, the actual investor, the broker, the marketing guy or gal, and understanding each person's role is really important. Even more important is understanding that these deals are complex and that it's so much more than a multiple of EBITDA. So today we're going to run through the top five questions we get on the PE corporate sale and give you some of our thoughts about when it might be for you and when it might not. So if you listen to episode 44, then you're familiar with our guest today, Mr. Brett Pierce. Welcome back to Transition Talk. Glad to be here. <laughs> so I promise Charles is not locked in a trunk somewhere. He will be back with regularly scheduled programming next week. The timing of these two episodes just worked out. But Brett, I wanted to have you back today on this topic because what some listeners don't know is that we have a service line where we help people who want to go this PE corporate route and you are a part of that service line. You have a unique background before EDA. Tell me a little bit about that and kind of how that's applicable to what we're doing here. Yeah, I was actually in the private equity space for a number of years prior to becoming the president of Lead Down Alliance. And, you know, we analyzed deals from all shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. large deals, small deals. Most of them were small business deals. So these weren't like giant corporations that we dealt with, but we did deal with some buyers on the side that were that were relatively large. And so, you know, we kind of took some of that knowledge, took a lot of that experience. Understanding how the deal flow works from the buyer side, mm-hmm. I think is really important in this space. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of news. You know, there's a lot of letters going out to people mm-hmm. right now about, you know, you're going to go out of business or you better sell now or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, we felt that it was necessary at NDP and all the affiliated companies to really dive into this and understand this and, and provide a service for this. And so over the last many, many months, you know, we've kind of developed a nice war chest of knowledge, of understanding, mm-hmm. of buyers, of sellers. And we take a little different approach to it, Christy, than, than most people that Absolutely. we run into. And, and some of it's kind of startling, to be honest with you. But yeah, that's what I'm doing here. I have a lot of great contacts in the space and uh, we have a nice portfolio of buyers and sellers alike. Yep. And I think we're getting the questions and kind of having the experience with people coming to us, getting the letters in the mail and saying, hey, is this something that I'm interested in, or is this something I should be interested in? And we realized, you know, at NDP that we had a hole in our service line and, you know, we champion the private buyer, but we all like to offer options that want to go another route. And what we found is that a lot of broker, if you've talked to me, you know, I'm not a super big fan of the fact of that word broker, because it can have negative connotations, but we want to know, and I think we're a little bit different in this space because we want to educate the seller about why do they want to sell? What is their goal? What is their intent? Is it just about the money? Do they not want to work another day ever? Are they just super burnt out? Do they want to go and do something else professionally? Or did they just get this letter and it looks enticing and it looks like a lot of money and they think they can walk out the door tomorrow and get whatever's in this letter? And so I think that we're a little bit different and then we ask the why. It's not about the commission. Clearly, you know, all businesses operate for a reason, but I think for us, it's really important. And it goes back to our mission of making 
making sure that we educate our clients of what they're doing and let them make the decision. And so, you know, by having our relationship and your relationship with some of these buyers, it enables us to educate them on here is an offer and here is what other people can offer you. And here's what to know about this buyer versus this buyer versus what they're offering doesn't align with what we're hearing you say about what your why is and why you want to do something. So we know life after the deal is like a big component for most people who sell. And you've heard a lot of those stories and people you've spoken with, you know, that's something that they're not thinking about in the beginning phases when they get that letter. Yeah. And you actually, you thought you misspoke earlier by saying educating the buyer, but we're actually are, you know, NDP, we actually are educating both sides of this. You know, while in the corporate space, you don't really need to educate the corporate buyers on what EBITDA means. Mm -hmm. You certainly need to educate them on the nuances of the practice that you've learned. Not all of these things are the same. Not all of these puzzle pieces fit together. Not all of these buyers are the same. They have just as many differentiating factors as the individual sellers have. So we really are trying to educate both sides of this. And, you know, the private to private transaction is its own animal and the private to corporate transaction is Mm -hmm. is its own animal too. And, you know, there's all of these tactics and marketing pitches that are being done right now in the space. And obviously it's a little different world now over the last few months as to all the different things that have been happening. But, you know, for the most part, for most people, if all we're thinking is financially, Mm -hmm. the deals being presented aren't strictly from a financial standpoint any better than if you kept running your practice at the same profitability levels for a variety of years and then maybe wanted to sell back then. That being said, there are all kinds of people out there. There's all kinds of reasons. And so for those people who want to, you know, take some chips off the table, distribute the risk of being a business owner, it can make some good sense. You know, there are just so many deal variations out there. Mm -hmm. Like every time you hear about your friend did this and your friend got 4,000 times multiple or this (laughs) or that, he never has to work again or he has to work for the rest of his life or, you know, whatever the case may be. There's so much of that, and each one of these buyers, each one of these transactions is different. And not surprisingly, these deals typically aren't like two-page contracts. No. These are relatively complex situations just because everybody wants to cover their bases. And so kind of like you said, our number one goal is to educate the independent doctor Mm -hmm. on the process and the opportunity. This is how it works. This is the opportunity. And then then we dive into more about what the doctor needs from a personal and a financial standpoint. Yeah, because I mean, I think that's one thing that you and I have both talked at length about is we are not the ones who are going to have to live in this deal after it's signed, sealed, and delivered and you get your first check. Like you as a seller, the one who are, you are living the life after the deal. And so you have to be aware of what that is And it's okay. We've worked with people who say, this one thing is really important to me. And Brett, you and I are like, I don't know why that even matters, but it matters to you. And therefore it matters to us. And we'll find a buyer who is going to be okay with that. Or we'll know this is the line in the sand that you have. I think that's what's so different about NDP is... It's kind of the relational and long-term vision that you guys take with the clients, that we take with the clients. And so I've dealt with a lot of brokers in my past life and now, and it's very much a transactional relationship. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like your real estate agent, you know, like mm-hmm. let's buy and sell a house. And mm-hmm. maybe it's a perfect deal, maybe it's not, but let's move this house so I can move on to the next one, so I can move on to the next one, so I can move on to the next one. That's a very different philosophy than, than what we take here. And sometimes that means we're more of a pain in the butt to the buyer. Sometimes it means we're more of a pain in the butt to the seller. But this isn't simply a transaction where if we put you in the wrong situation, we're going to be okay with it moving forward and, like, you know, have a nice life. 
don't spend it all in one place type of situation. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I think that's a that's a key differentiator. And that's also what scares me about this industry a lot because there's a lot of noise out there from people who are very transaction-based. Absolutely. Okay, so let's jump into the meat of today's episode. We get a lot of questions, and we're going to only talk about the top five today, but each of those are pretty heavy hitters. So first, and we get this question a lot, I got this question from my marketing person. What is DSO versus PE versus corporate buyer versus broker? Like those are a lot of people and not all of them are in a transaction. Those so are, what, are, what is the difference? Those here? are a lot of people and some of them <laughs> overlap with each other and some of them don't. Some of them like each other, some of them don't. So there's a big distinction between these three entities and, and understanding the differences is critical. There's a lot of differences, but I'm really just going to try to focus on the differences from a high level that matter to the doctors. I and mean, we don't need to get into mm-hmm. the funding differences and all kind of the, the systematic things, but there are three main categories that are worth discussing. Okay. A DSO, mm-hmm. a private equity group mm-hmm. and a broker. Okay. So let's start with DSO. DSO, there's no real formal definition that I think appropriately describes what it is, but typically, and again, this is very high level, typically it's an organization that has some ownership in all the practices and provides some level of administrative support. It can be a ton of locations with a ton of administrative services, like a Heartland, Mm -hmm. or it can be very few locations with very little or no administrative support. All of those things qualify as a DSO. Any combination in between that spectrum qualifies as a DSO. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just basically a group of practices. And some have the same name. Some don't brand. Some do brand. Some have different deal structures. Some buy all. Some buy partial. So that's the DSO. The DSO is kind of the entity that does that. So now we're going to talk about private equity. So earlier I said I worked in private equity, which means it's a private amount of money that backs business enterprises and and buys businesses. So this gets a little convoluted in dental right now because most of the DSOs that I just explained are financially backed by private equity. So private equity is the money that allows the DSOs to buy the practices. Yep. Okay. So that they're kind of working together there. Most of the time, it's referring to, when you hear private equity, it is referring to the financial part of it. But sometimes a private equity group comes out and says, I just want to start buying practices. By definition, a private equity group is not a DSO. It's not a dental service organization. I mean, they're, they're not, or support, or whatever your definition yep. is. It's not, they don't have a ton of infrastructure. And so if you're being courted by just a private equity group, chances are they don't have as much administrative support they're probably just investors that are looking to buy your practice, to buy the cash flow, and maybe maybe build the administration around you. So if you're a doctor who's saying, I just want to do dentistry, I'm tired of doing all of the admin, payroll, I don't want to do any of that anymore, keep in mind that not every person who buys you, if you're looking to go the DSO or private equity route, is going to take those on. That's something that we hear a lot is I just want to do the dentistry and then the deals that have been put forth for those people still require them to do all of the admin and likely just make less money. There's a ton of variance there. DSOs can be the same way. And so, you know, I kind of break this up into you know, kind of established DSOs yep. that have a bunch of locations and a, well, you don't have a bunch of locations. You have a bunch of operational ability. You, when you sell or you partner with one of them, you kind of get wrapped up in this little cocoon of administrative support. Mm-hmm. Some, a lot of the emerging DSOs, which is just all this money kind of jumping into the space, 
trying to put things together, they may rely on you to like, hey, we want to copy your mm-hmm. systems. And so when you're looking at these deals, like you said earlier, it's not just about the multiple. Like I'm going to get this multiple from this group and the same multiple from this group. That doesn't mean the deals are the same. Yep. What do you care about and what do you want to do? I don't hear a ton of doctors say, I got into dentistry because I love administration. I haven't heard that quite yet. Maybe somebody on this podcast can be the first. But there's a difference. And so all these DSOs, all these private equity groups, what you call it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. It just matters in terms of, unless you just want to have a conversation over a glass of wine or something with somebody or whiskey or whatever your (laughs) preference is. What about brokers? Because that's also something that we get letters or we have clients that come to us and say, here's a letter I got from a private equity group when it's really not a private equity group or DSO. It is truly someone who's trying to then court them to then try to get a DSO or private equity person. I think that is a huge distinction. Brokers are none of the things I just talked about. We, NDP, would be considered a broker. We considered a broker. I don't like the term, but NDP, we would be considered brokers. Brokers are not buyers. Mm -hmm. Brokers are not DSOs. Brokers are not private equity groups. Brokers are typically the people that are going to send you the letters. Mm -hmm. The letters of, hey, we have somebody who might want to buy your practice. Mm -hmm. And we think it could be worth this. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, this person doesn't even know me. How can this number be right? Those are valid questions to ask. They're simply the agents that facilitate the transaction. And they are necessary in a lot of ways. They are very necessary in terms of the contract negotiations and certainly the contract understanding But if you get a letter in the mail about selling your practice, it's likely from a broker, not directly from a buyer. It could be from a buyer, but typically those activities are reserved for brokers because the brokers are just chasing commission typically, like Mm -hmm. a real estate agent or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then like, you know, kind of a a way that helps me remember this is, you know, like who determine the brokers and the buyers. Like typically if the name of the company is an animal (laughs) and and usually an aggressive animal, (laughs) It's likely a broker. I'm gonna have to get with Charles. We have to change your name. <laughs> that's that's, that's right. You need to be like you know, like dragon or something. Yeah. Um, but I think of this like when you're selling your house, you can clearly sell your house by owner, right? Yeah. But most people don't go that route. It's harder to go that route. There's a lot of things that you, as an individual person, are not used to doing, which is why kind of that facilitator is should be in the middle. Um, but much like when you're buying a house, you need to make sure that facilitator is on board with what you're doing and is your goals and has like the right intent in selling your practice and kind of is looking at the right buyers based on what you want. You should still be in control of the process. You have just had someone help you do that. If you need a broker to sell your house, this is significantly more complex and you will need someone to help you through this process Mainly so you don't just take the first offer that you were given or that you're not, you know, you didn't know what else was out there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically helping you understand what are the opportunities. What else is there? This one looks great, but maybe, you know, and maybe it works great for you financially. Maybe everything works. And, you know, we have a lot of sellers that sell to the first offer and are very happy with it. Yeah. But our job is to make sure that that's the best solution for them. And so unfortunately or fortunately, right now, brokers are controlling the message. Brokers are the ones that are telling you all these different things about what's happening in the market. This is what's going to get you this value. This is what's going to get you this value. This is, these are some things that you need to do to do this, or you know, maybe you should put this together with a bunch of your friends or whatever. Where we get our information is we mm-hmm. talk to the buyers. Yeah. We recently did this at a Cane Waters annual meeting, had mm-hmm. a panel there, had a bunch of buyers. I just thought it was so interesting to hear kind of their perspective, and I got a lot of feedback of the same, of just how they view these things compared to how people think they view these things. If you have every, let's just break it down to the house example because most people have gone through that process. Mm -hmm. 
if you have every broker in the country telling you that a certain type of fence or a pool or whatever, so say blinds. If you if you tell if you have every broker in the country telling you the blinds are worth make your house worth more, but not a single buyer agrees with that. Yeah. What difference does it make? Yeah. The, what the broker says. Yeah. Hundred percent. Right? Okay. This is a big question that we get because it's like the term of the century. EBITDA. So what is EBITDA? And I can give my two cents here too, since this is my, (laughs) this is my house. How is it calculated and how is it different than my practice net? And what's that relationship with price? Yeah. It's like the worst acronym ever made, right? Like EBITDA. (laughs) Nobody can even say it. EBITDA, EBITDA, EBITDA. It doesn't really matter how you say it, but it's definitely, you need to understand how it's different than your practice net. And so you can dive into kind of the details of the chargebacks mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, but as simply as I can put it, EBITDA from a buyer's perspective is what the profit of the practice will be. If I'm a buyer, it's what the profit of the practice will be after I buy your practice. So paying your salary, taking out personal expenses, this is different than the practice net. Yep. You know, the practice net is basically the main difference is before the doctor gets paid, before yep. the producer gets paid. And so that's not going to be your net because if I were to buy your practice, Christy, I need to hire you to do the work. Yep. So that's got to come out of my operating profit. So if you're a $2 million practice and you net a million bucks, your EBITDA is not a million bucks. Well, your EBITDA before Dr. Comp. <laughs> okay, sure. In terms of the va- in terms of how your practice <laughs> is going to be valued, it's going to be like this. Okay, okay. Um, you know, so then you just allocate the remaining profit based on the arrangement that was made. That's the primary. Yeah. Difference. Again, it's it's you understanding how a buyer is thinking of this and what a buyer's experience with this is. Right. Like a buyer, when a buyer says EBITDA, there is a before Dr. Comp and after Dr. Comp. And when your buddy says they got 400 times EBITDA, (laughs) what EBITDA, right? And what does that look like? For big picture, and we talk about this on many of the episodes that Charles and I have done thus far, is normalizing that cash flow and adding back all the stuff that you're running through, or you should be running through from a tax perspective. And that's what the PE firms are going to do too. It's the same thing a private buyer does, the same thing a bank does, but they want to get to that profit. The difference is if a private buyer is buying your practice, all of that EBITDA is theirs, right? Because they're going to be doing the work. If a corporate buyer is coming in, they're going to have to pay you or an associate to do the work. And therefore they're not going to pay you for that profit because they're going to be paying it back out to you. So what we often see, and this kind of goes a little bit into the next one, but how does that impact your value is your EBITDA. Clearly the more profitable your practice, the more they're willing to pay you, but they also take into account how much they're paying you in compensation for doing the clinical work. So if you have a need to make more, cause for whatever reason, ego or need or whatever it is to make <laughs> 35 or 40% or some flat salary for the work you're going to do clinically post-sale, your EBITDA and the amount you get as a price is going to go down. There's a relationship between those two. They have an amount they're going to give you, and it's going to be split up between compensation and it's going to be split up between purchase price. You can't get everything all at one time. Yeah, it is. One affects the other. And, and I, you know, if you want the biggest purchase price possible and you think you don't want to get paid much at all for working, I promise you, you won't be happy with that arrangement. Yeah. If you think you don't want any money up front and you want all your money in salary, I promise you won't be happy with that arrangement yep. also. Um, so there's a balance in there. And this is all kind of the, the discovery process of understanding what that mix is, 
what matters in your life, and then how's the buyer going to perceive that? Because everybody has these, these risk tolerances, and, and those two factors are probably the biggest parts. Of the Absolutely. Purchase. And so from a sales structure, and this kind of flows into how your sale is structured and when you get that purchase price. So this is another thing that I think people are beginning, some people understand, and they've educated themselves enough about it. But I think this is becoming more and more complex. The more buyers and they get in this market and the current economy and the current environment that we're in with COVID, of what are these sales structures look like? And I think the answer is a hundred thousand ways that these deals can be structured and even buyer to buyer while they might have standards and I'm using air quotes, it's not always the same case. So give me some like big picture, like quote, quote, standard structures that that you see from these type of deals. And this is kind of where the comparisons to real estate home buying stop. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's a lot of differences here. And so you know, a typical arrangement includes the seller getting a portion of the value of his practice up front and then a portion of the value of the practice rolled into some other type of entity, mm-hmm. some other larger entity, the corporate entity or, or what have you. And so you know, say your practice is worth 10 million bucks, you arrive at a 70-30 arrangement with the buyer. So 70-30 means 70% of that money is going to be paid to you up front. So you get $7 million up front. And the remaining $3 million is going to be put into kind of an investment. You could look at it as an investment in, I call it the mothership, but the holding company typically. Mm-hmm. And so then Like equity. Equity. It's basically, yeah. yeah, it's rolled into equity. And so now you're kind of tied to, again, depending on the arrangement, you're tied to some other performance metric that keeps you at risk basically to help make sure that you're still going to perform and keep you motivated to perform throughout the time. And so if that, a lot of our people are being told, hey, you roll some equity into our business, we're going to sell it for 25 times and that money is going to be worth a ton more at the end. And I hope that's true. There's a variety of different structures. I still see 100% sales. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm going to see a ton of those without any hold back now, mm-hmm. considering the, the circumstances. Most of these deals land between 60, 40, and 80, 20. Yep. And you got to understand why. Like They want you to have some motivation to continue working throughout. And then in terms of your, as far as your compensation works, you know, it's typically going to be, I don't know, I've seen 26 to 32% yeah. of the production of the doctor, typically the collections of the doctor. Sorry to interrupt. I think from a structure standpoint and its relationship to EBITDA and price, like we were just talking about, the more skin in the game you have, the more they're likely to give you from an EBITDA multiple standpoint or price standpoint. Yeah, some buyers can do the 100% sale. Some aren't doing that at all. Even outside of this environment, that's just not how they work. But if they're going to do 100% sale, you're going to get a lower EBITDA than if you do the 70-30 or 60-40 or 80-20. So, I mean, they are transactional. They are not, for the most part, in these types of things. Yes, some of them want to have relationships and build relationships with their doctors. But when they're buying, right, the actual process of buying is transactional and they are smart and they are educated and they are looking at the numbers and they want their risk to be mitigated as much as possible. And they know that you, as the owner, as the doctor, have a lot of value that you're bringing to the table from a clinical standpoint to keep those profits that you're selling, that EBITDA, keep that going for them and help them turn it into something else. And so you kind of have to keep that in mind and know there's trade-offs at every vantage point here. Yeah, there's a huge difference between a private-to-private sale and a private-to-corporate sale. Private-to-private is very emotional on both sides. Mm -hmm. Private-to-corporate is very non-emotional on one side and still emotional on the other side. And 
you know, if you felt like you could pull the wool over somebody's eyes and maybe trick a private buyer, you can't necessarily do that Mm -hmm. in a private to corporate relationship. Like they do this for a living. They're all very smart financial guys. You need to watch them. Mm -hmm. But if you think you're going to get a unreasonably unfair amount on to your benefit, Mm -hmm. it's probably not going to happen without some pretty significant strings attached. These guys aren't stupid. They know what they're doing. And they probably already have a plan for improvement when they push play on your practice. Okay, that was number three. We are going through these quickly. So number four I had on my list is how do I increase, we get this from sellers a lot as they kind of contemplate transition in in the next years, how do I increase my value if I know I want a private equity sale in the future? I actually think this is a slightly different answer for a private to private and a private to corporate. 100%. While there's no downside to increasing the profitability of your practice, regardless if you want to sell or you want to sell to a DSO or a You want to keep it and put the money in your pocket. Sell it to your grandfather or whoever. It doesn't really matter. The more profitable your practice is, the more efficient your practice is, the mm-hmm. better it is. And so if you're listening to this because you're unsure you want to sell or because you want to sell, it doesn't really matter. The marching orders are kind of the same. Make the practice the best that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, the last podcast kind of talked about ways to do that. Yep. But, you know, from a very high level, um, you want to know what you can do to increase your value. Think of the transaction in terms of how the buyer is going to think about it. So put yourself in the buyer's shoes and understand what things would you be worried about if you were buying your practice and what things would you be excited about. Mm -hmm. And the more that you can mitigate the risk of the buyer, Mm -hmm. the more money you're going to get. And how you mitigate the risk for the buyer is a few things. There's a lot of things. If you start with that mindset and you look at your processes. So look at your processes. Okay, so, you know, processes mitigate something I call key man risk. Key man risk is basically if I buy your business and you're the entire business, I have a ton of risk when I buy your business because if you get disenfranchised with me or if you decide to leave or for whatever reason you don't want to work anymore, I don't really have that valuable of an asset because you were the whole thing. And the key man risk is a very relevant risk in dental because most of you guys aren't practicing with 10 other doctors. Mm -hmm. If you are the whole business and you have all the relationships, everybody loves you and all of that, that's risky for me. Just like if you were buying somebody else's practice, it's a risk because all you got to do is leave. All the customers go with you. All the relationships go with you. What did I just buy? So do what you can to kind of mitigate that key man risk. And sometimes that is an associate. If you're the only one who's ever been able to work in your practice and you've tried six, seven associates and you get in a fight with every one of them and they all go on and do something else, you know, as a buyer, I would be like, okay, well, what's going on here? Can I not actually replace this guy? Because if you, because the buyer, you don't want to just buy this and not place the doctor. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to buy it and grow it. And so that happens with processes. What is the process for this? What is the process for that? I really, you know, the two mindsets that you can work on here is think of the transaction, how the buyer would think of it. Think if you were buying your own practice. Mm-hmm. And then what can the processes do to help me run this thing like a business, not a practice? Just because you run it like a business doesn't mean you don't care about the patients. Right. It just means you're running it like a business. Our most productive practices that value the highest are the ones that have 
the best processes in place because mm-hmm. one of the main reasons because they reduce the key man risk involved yep. there. And they understand their data. They look at their numbers. Mm-hmm. They know where their marketing dollars are going for new patients or if it's ortho, they conversion or how do they get people in the door? And they've looked at all of it and they're aware of where their faults are. They have explanations for this is why and this is what we've tried and this is not working and this is why this works. Because again, I mean, if you think about it, in some of these buyers, like you mentioned earlier, are not, they own 50 dental practices or hundreds and they have all these processes. Some of them are just private equity that want to come in and own and get some of the profit and they rely on you to kind of set up and kind of teach them in a way kind of what to do and kind of if they see a well-oiled machine, they're probably willing to pay for that well-oiled machine. Yeah, exactly. And and they're not the big bad wolf. These people, they're just trying to make responsible decisions. Typically, they have investors. Yeah. Trying to make responsible decisions. The days where like a corporate group would come in and change everything about you and change the name and and make you wear a red shirt and a funny hat, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Unless you want it to. These are not like bad groups. These are not, you know, there's amicable relationships that work on all sides. It's not for everybody. Well, and I also want to highlight something that doesn't work. And we learned this when we had the buyer panel earlier this year. One thing we hear often is, hey, I want to merge me and five of my buddies want to all like create a DSO and we want to kind of be this big unit so that we can be more attractive to private equity or whomever. Being big doesn't make you more attractive. You're big, but you're five different practice with five different patient mixes and five different patient management systems and five different collection processes and five different clinical methodologies. Like you are not a unit. And that PE or DSO or corporate group is going to look at you like five individual practices. You've probably just made it a little messier for yourself. Now, if you're going to merge and you're going to streamline administration and you're all going to get on the same practice management system and you're going to, you know, make it a well-oiled five location machine, well, then that's a different story. But what we see more often than not is just this thought that if we merge all together, we'll become more attractive because we'll be this bigger unit. And that's not necessarily the case, at least from what we're hearing from buyers. Yeah. If you do that, and I know, you know, everybody has friends and they, we practice the same way and we like the same things and we're kind of in the same area. Maybe we should just get together and instead of getting a five times multiple, I think we could probably get eight if we combined our revenues and, and our EBITDA. And so, you know, that's that's not typically the case. And, and again, just kind of go back to what I said earlier, think of it in terms of the buyer. So you and four of your friends get together and have coffee together and decide that you guys want to do this together, but you're all going to practice the same way you always have. You're all going to have the same systems that you always have. And none of you are really willing to change any administrative processes or maybe even owner, exchange ownership in any way. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I would pay more for that. It's it's actually probably five times the amount of work for the buyer. Right. And again, you may get a bump. You may get a little bump for doing that just because somebody has a plan for you. But the plan is certainly not going to be, okay, I'm going to buy you guys and you guys can continue to operate completely individually and do it and kind of do whatever you want. Yeah, because they're looking for a way to make some money, right? If you guys just follow the money here, everybody, just like if you were to want to buy a practice when they want to buy a practice... They need an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to like get a return on their investment. Just like anybody else, that doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them good people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of the way it is. So yeah, we asked that question to I think eight of the largest buyers in the space, and to a person, every one of them said it's probably just the sum of the parts is the value that we would give them. Meaning, mm-hmm. you may get a super marginal bump on your mm-hmm. multiple, 
but is it worth all the additional work and, and that you're house? going to take on as the seller? Yeah, like they don't own the practices as like an entity. It's just it's just hard. Yeah, and then this is by far, especially in the in the times we're in, is the market here to stay? And has this market been impacted by COVID? Dum dum dum. Yeah, well, I think the answer is obvious. I mean, obviously, everything has been impacted by this. Yeah, right? we're now going to call EBITDA EBITDAC. EBITDA, oh. Uh, Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and corona. And corona. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> I learned something today. Yeah, there's there's going to be kind of this blank spot for like three months in, in these financial statements. Yeah. And how are people going to evaluate these things? If I were to look at your practice, oh, you know, nobody's back and I don't have any revenue, but I think it will come back and I hope it does. And, 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 maybe, and maybe it will and maybe it won't. The industry's been impacted in a couple of ways. The first way is a decent amount of like the business development guys for the corporate buyers just kind of stopped activity. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of them just said, you know, we're not buying anything. The money has told us that it's too risky right now or whatever they are saying. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the corporate development guys have gone away. A handful of them have been full steam ahead and been excited about everything. But when it comes to how these practices are going to be valued with this three-month blind spot, it still remains to be seen a little bit. But one thing, you know, back to my original theory, if I think of this in terms of the buyer, if I was buying a practice that had no revenue and no employees, but they were awesome for the last 15 years, I'm probably still going to give them the same valuation, right? I'm probably yep. going to be fair of that, and I, you know, and I hope you come back, and if it does, it's great. But if you don't, that's going to affect the amount of money that is distributed to you. Yeah, I think they still absolutely have faith that, I mean, they're still buying, which I think is a huge indicator that this is still a good industry. They have faith that it's going to come back, but they know what we've talked about several times in the last few months about on this topic, which is not every practice is going to be impacted the same way. And so if you are a practice and you're going to close before you're back to your pre-COVID level production and profitability, then you're probably going to have some kind of clause in your deal that says, hey, we're willing to give you X if blah, blah, and blah, whatever that is. And it's going to be unique to each deal. And there might be some deals that they don't do that they may have done before because they have a different risk tolerance, at least in the short term. I think there's the same interest. It's just interest with kind of qualifiers of, hey, this is what I'm going to need to see. And maybe a little more diligence in certain areas that maybe they didn't ask before. And I think we're seeing that as you know, the market and the industry kind of open back up. And it's a free test of practice resiliency if I'm a buyer. Oh, yeah. To see how quickly are they coming back? You know, what's the morale of the staff? What do the processes look like? How is the AR Mm -hmm. behaving right now? Are we still getting people to pay? Do we have to give discounts all over the place to get people back into the practice? There's all these different things that we can we can evaluate and we can and we can look at. The overall message is you guys or anybody in this dental space is in a great spot. I mean, in my past life, we used to fight over businesses that were like netting seven and eight percent. That would be embarrassing to do in dental right now. Mm-hmm. Dental's a good place to be. These multiples are still going to be there as long as people care about oral health, there's going to be a market for this. People have been buying productive businesses since the beginning of capitalism. Mm -hmm. That's not going to stop anytime soon. The multiples may go up and down a little bit, but the market's very strong, and it's going to be very strong for a long time. Corporate dentistry is not going to take over the world. They're going to take their piece of the world, and you know they might even help some of you guys, and they may hurt some of you guys as, as well. It's a good place to be. The values are going to be strong in terms of just general business terms. 
And I think there's a lot of things you can do to position yourself in a way to take advantage of situations like this. There's going to be an opportunity right now to differentiate yourselves from other practices based on how you deal with this situation, how you treat, how you make your patients feel comfortable and how you market that message. This is a really good opportunity for those of you who are excited about that, and you can get significant benefit from doing things like that right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, as we kind of wrap up with those five questions, I think it's important to know that any transition, this is a big, big decision. And these PE DSO deals are more complex than the private transition and all the more reason to be educated. And at least in my experience, it's one of those things that where people say, hey, I'm ready to do this and I'm ready to do this now. And I joke in the private world that someone doesn't want to sell and the very next day they're ready to sell yesterday and there's like no warning. And that's the case I think with private too is they get these letters and it wasn't a thought in their head and then all of a sudden it's planted and now they want to do it and they want to move on that first offer, right? And it depends on why you want to move on the first offer. But again, you wouldn't take the first offer in almost any other situation. You'd at least explore the market and see what you can get and be educated about it. And again, everyone has their own reason to sell. It is not always financial. And in these PE DSO offers, although that's what a lot of you focus on and that's what you hear and EBITDA and that's what, that's kind of what the chatter is. There's so much more that goes into these and that's kind of what we try to focus on here. So any closing words, you had a really good little closer there made me all warm and tingly inside. Oh no. (laughs) Well, I mean, I would like to leave it with, you know, just because somebody says you can sell doesn't mean you should. Just because you get a letter in the mail that says your practice is worth X. I understand like taking that into consideration, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean you should. And I know that it's it's hard to kind of defend that. I mean, for example, three months ago, I got a letter in the mail that said, hey, are you interested in selling your house? I may have an interested buyer. Okay. Okay. And so similar to the letters you guys get. And so the next thought is naturally, well, I wonder what it's worth. And then now you start kind of going down this rabbit hole and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy doesn't know anything about me. My kid goes to this school. It's five minutes from my work. I love this house. And it's clearly a real estate agent that is sending me that, that doesn't care about anything except for for the commission. And I'm not saying that's everybody, but just because you get that letter, Mm -hmm. don't be like, man, it would be nice to sell. Because, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. And our our default answer, guys, our default answer when, is it a good idea for me to sell or not? Our default answer is going to be... No. Probably not or no based on what we know now and, and then And then can, you tell us the why and we yeah. see if that why is like, okay, I hear you. I, I understand yeah. that now, right? But yeah, I absolutely agree. So again, education, just like any transition, private equity and DSO space is a very different market. And again, we champion the private owner and the private buyer, but there's a space for this too. Um, and we want to be a resource as always if that's the direction you're going. So Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for the double episode, Mr. Pierce. That's it for today. Remember to subscribe to Transition Talk on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and as always, like us on social. Have a great week. Until next time, friends. 